Blog Talk Radio. everyone and welcome once again to Madame Perry Salon, the cultural salon in a genie bottle in cyberspace. I'm your host, your groove mistress and spiritual advisor, Madame Perry, but you don't have to call me Madame. You can call me Jan, Jennifer, JP. I am just delighted to be here and delighted to have a fantastic guest that I've had. Also, I want to thank everyone who's been subscribing and listening. Um, I've noticed, I, I don't know all the whys and wherefores, but it seems like sometimes there will be one particular podcast app that my show will spike on more than another for a while, like it might be Spotify or Apple or Mixcloud or something. So wherever you listen, thank you, and thanks for the cool reviews. It helps me to continue to get more fantastic guests, like the guests we've had recently and we have coming up and tonight. Uh, Matthew Clickstein recently, uh, fascinating guy, Shelly Smalls. Very soon we've got... We've got Charles Mason coming up. He is a steampunk maker and author. And a few more folks that I'm not allowed to name until we get it all out of their publicist, but I am so grateful. Um, I've also... I've also been talking, you know, less for the last, I don't know, four or five weeks. I've been playing a... a been playing a spot for the International Steampunk Symposium, which is taking place this weekend. In fact, it's already started right now in Cincinnati, and I just can't wait. Um, wish I was going. This is the only one I'm not getting to this year. But if you've listened to all the spots I've played, and the theme is Steampunk Under the Big Top this year, uh, Captain... <laughs> I have Captain Medea Ashra uh, here with me. In fact, she's just she's just beamed into the genie bottle from from the uh, from the event under the big top in Cincinnati, Ohio. Captain Medea Ashra. Hello, can you hear me? All right. Hi. Uh, I can't. You can speak just a little bit louder. Well, oh, can you hear me now? Is this oh, better? yeah, definitely. Okay. Hi, yeah, we are here. Jungle Gyms has sponsored a meet and greet for us at Lovely. their bar area. So they made an absolutely beautiful charcuterie for us. And we have a bunch of people dressed up in steampunk. And then Dutch Creek Winery here is here as well. And they're going to be at our event. And they have Ooh. made some lovely gift baskets and samples for us. And they're going to be sampling their wonderful products. In fact, I have tried their sangria this evening, and I'm trying another one of their wines now, and I'm 
it's just lovely. And it's really garnered a lot of interest because there's, we were all in costume. We've got steampunk Santa. We've got all these lovely people oh. in outfits, and it's just amazing. So since the, this is the meet and greet tonight, and then we kick off our event tomorrow with our tea stroll, four o'clock and it's I'm just I'm so excited we've already had so many people be so excited about it and I'm I'm just thrilled to death it's so wonderful to see so many people already here already dressed up running around and having fun oh you know I was going to go but my husband had a business trip this weekend and the and the uh, kennels were all booked up so I thought if I had to say now he's going to be here so I might I, I'm, I could possibly sneak out of town I could show up you should. You should show up. I know. So go over quickly some of the people you've got there. I know you've got the fabulous Madame Askew and the Grand Arbiter. We do uh, from out west, and we also have Freak Show Deluxe coming. And Freak we Show have Deluxe, Freak Show Deluxe. So there's going to be um, all sorts of wild stuff that they do. There's fire dancing, sitting on or laying on beds of pins and uh, or, or nails, I guess, beds of nails. And then we have Dr. Drake's world-famous exhibition of bizarre, of the bizarre, which there's, it's an oddities exhibition that'll be there. We have Steampunk Xena, who on Friday and Saturday night at 9 will be doing fire dancing outside in the Holiday Inn parking lot, which will be just so cool. We have our Steampunk Olympiad. So Tim Davis has designed the most beautiful teapot race course I've ever seen. And the Olympiad will be going all weekend as well. And we've got our Gothic Masquerade tomorrow night, which is at nine from 9 to midnight, as well as parties. And we've got a high tea, which unfortunately sold out. It was 100 tickets that sold out. But, yeah, there's so many wonderful things. And you can go to steampunksymposium.com to see our program and our list of events. And as if that wasn't awesome enough, if you Ooh. come on Sunday, which is Father's Day, and you have anybody under 18, they will get in free with the purchase of a paid ticket. Sweet. All right. I love it. Very exciting. Also, you've got an artist in residence who uh, I dearly love, a friend of mine, Liana Renee Heber. Oh, she's amazing, and she will be doing some readings from her book, and she will also be around all weekend at her table selling her publications and be available for talking. All right. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so very much. I know you're in the middle of something. I talked to you a few minutes yes. ago. We have you're about in the middle of the uh, 30 people here in the meet and greet, <laughs> and I'm so grateful that you had us had me on. And I hope you all get to come out. We'll also be having some live events on Facebook. I do, I do want to show off the Teapot Race course. So if people look at the times, I will be doing a live Facebook event for that because it, it's going to be awesome. So the Splendid people teapot can't race. make it. Yes, yeah. we'll be doing some live events. So, yeah, I'd love people to check that out. All right. And Madame Perry Salon is a sponsor. So hopefully if you see my name somewhere, you'll uh, <laughs> he'll, he'll make a take of this. So, yeah. Your well, name thank is you. on every program. So, yeah, we've <laughs> Great. got that on every program. So everybody sees that. Oh, I love you guys so much. Madame thank Perry you. Salon. Yes. All right. I, I a, yes. <laughs> Have a fabulous weekend. Wonderful. And, and I will do my best to sneak out of town. That would be lovely. I'd love to see you there. Okay. Thanks so much. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was fun. Captain Medea Ashera, um, which stands for She Who Walks Above the Sea. I can dig it. Now, 
to the show, to the real show for tonight. I was uh, approached. You remember we had Shelly Schmalls, uh, performer, producer, filmmaker, uh, film festival um, producer. It's hard to say everything Shelly Smalls does, like a lot of fabulous women I know, just a lot of things going on. And she introduced me, after the show, she introduced me to a friend of hers, uh, Nicole Sage, who's a publicist, and said she's got some fantastic clients. I know you want to have one on your show. Of course, first of all, I thought about somebody who had been on the show before named Sage Nicole. And Sage Nicole, if you know, was one of the founding members of the band The Regrets. And she's no longer their bass player, but she has a lot of other projects going on. Uh, But no, it wasn't Sage Nicole. It was Nicole Sage. And she has delivered to me a fabulous woman. I know you're going to be very excited about the show because I've had several questions about it. But she is a director and producer of opera, film, theater. And she's produced and directed many documentaries, many as in M-I-N-I hyphen, uh, many documentaries for the – National Endowment for the Arts Opera Honors, uh, Jazz Masters, Opera America, and American Composers. Her latest project, and that's what we're here to talk about, is called For the Love of Friends, a documentary chronicling activist Brent Nicholson Earl's thousand-mile run around the country in 20 months to bring awareness to the AIDS epidemic. And uh, the diary is airing for the, I mean, excuse me, the documentary is airing for the first time on public broadcast, started June 1st, and I am absolutely delighted to have her here. Cara Consilvio, welcome to Madam Perry Salon. Thank you so much for having me. I am just so psyched to have you here, and my, uh, my producer, Megan Whitlock, shout out to Megan, too. Um, I said, I had to shout out to all the fantastic women that helped me get this together. Shelly Smalls, uh, Nicole Sage, Megan Whitlock, and then I get you, Cara Casilvio. This is a good, this is a good thing. <laughs> Indeed it is, yes. Good. So, um, yeah, I, I have become known upon the steampunk things for putting for putting out, uh, doing presentations about women scientists, astronomers, chemists, depending on whatever the theme is, that never got credit for a lot of the work that they did and discoveries they made. So any chance to promote my sisters, I'm here to do. So let's talk, um, i got to go right into the film, the documentary, For the Love of Friends. And how did you first learn about Brett, Brent Nicholson Earl. Well, you know, I had met Brent at a Thanksgiving probably, I don't know, maybe six years ago. But there was a lot of people at Thanksgiving. It was New York, so, you know, you, you end up with a lot of uh, interesting people. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later, my mother-in-law, who Barbara Martinez, is, is an AIDS activist and has been so for a long time. She lost her brother to AIDS when he was just in his 20s. And um, she's really devoted her life to that. And she knew Brent because they worked together to plan an event for World AIDS Day every year um, called Out of the Darkness. So at a certain point, Brent had expressed to her that he had never really had his story told. And he had 
this dream of someone making a movie about his life. You know, he, he had been approached a long mm-hmm. time ago by sort of Hollywood, but they wanted to change all the facts and move it around, and it just didn't feel right to him. So he sort of passed, passed that opportunity. Um, and now sort of facing some, some illness and some health challenges, he was really um, starting to think about his life, his story, and wanting it to be out there and wanting it to be told. So, um, you know, my mother-in-law, Barbara, and, and David Turner, they were thinking, you know, Cara and her, uh, their son, Alex Turner, who's also a producer on the film, we have a, a small production company. Maybe this could be something we all do together. Maybe this could be a project. How can we get Brent's stories told? And so we met mm-hmm. with Brent, first of all, to see if he would let us tell his story. And then that was a meeting that was five hours long, where Brent and I talked for five <laughs> hours straight. Um, so that was really the beginning of it. And it was just about four years ago um, when we had that meeting. Four years ago? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, four years ago. And we, because... we started filming. Yeah, we started filming in that July because – there was a sense that Brent, who was officially on hospice at the time, was not going to be around. So, you know, we're sort of like, well, let's start filming these interviews and then we'll figure it all out. Um, so mm-hmm. we just started shooting um, in that July. Um, and that's how it started. And then it became a much larger production, a much larger plan as we sort of figured out how to make this feature documentary. Yes, I was going to say, you know, even in my small work in films, and I do short videos and stuff, um, you think four years to pull together a project like this, especially when you've got a lot of people involved and a lot of history, and you're concerned about telling a um, – concer- well, of course, you're concerned about the main person um, and their health, and you want to keep them with you where they can keep telling, make sure it's their own story. And I know you wanted to make sure that – Brent felt like it was his truth being told. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I and I also, as a filmmaker, wanted to find my way in. The thing that really bonded us right away was our love of theater. You know, I moved to New York in 2001 to be an actor um, and spent many years, you know, auditioning and doing all of those things. And, and so had Brent. That is what brought him to New York. He was an actor and a playwright um, before he did this run around America and then really devoted the rest of his life to activism. So one of the ideas I had early on was, um, is there a way for us to also tell this story in a theater? And I pitched to Brent, would you want to return to performing after 30 years away <laughs> and mm-hmm. then have that also be part of the documentary? And so that is what we did, you know, and part of it was practical because at the point we started, I just had no idea if I'd be able to track down any footage, any archival photos. That was a huge journey um, to, to find those materials. So, you know, it was like, how can we visually demonstrate Brent's story plus give him this joy of returning to the theater? So um, that show we pro- I produced and wrote and directed, and that went up in January of 2020, right before the pandemic. Oh, oh Lord. One of the last shows that everyone involved in, and, you know, it was Brent playing himself and then um, a group of also young performers playing Brent and the people, the people in Brent's life and illustrating that story. I love the way that that was done. I just thought everything just fits so beautifully. It's like you just gave so many, because there is video of the actual yeah. events. 
And but and there is Brent talking. But the theater part with the actors going on now. And there was something from some from his, you know, previous days. I don't want to say old days, mm-hmm. but yeah, from his younger days in the theater. But it, I thought it was a really fantastic. special yeah. It was a really special part of it. I'm always thinking about as a storyteller like, how do you pass someone's story to the next generation? How do those stories move through generations? And I know for a lot of the younger LGBTQA plus community, like, they weren't around. You know, I grew up in the 80s. I had an awareness of the AIDS epidemic. It was very present in my childhood. But for people in their 20s or even in their 30s, like, it's not it's, – they don't have the same understanding of it. Um, so for them to be in a room with Brent, and, and really ask him about his journey, his life, what it was like in New York in 19, the early 1980s. Um, it was it was amazing. It was like to share space in that way with, with a with a group of people from all different backgrounds and just um, c- create this thing together was really special. Mm. Because it's uh, uh, yeah, it, it added several different. Um, how I say layers or textures or experiences mm-hmm. to us because you got these young people and they're and they're and they're giving us his story. They're living and breathing the story as performers on stage, and you can tell every single one their heart, their mind, that they're they're feeling it in their soul. But you can mm-hmm. also tell they're all doing it with love. Yeah, it, it was it was a really special group and. It was a really special time, you know. We we did that, and then we were all alone in our houses for a really long time. And you know, we for us that was the start of post production. You know, we did end up filming another interview with Brent when it was safe to do so, maybe six or seven months later. But that was also when we could try to go to his storage space and try to find archival materials. And um, you know, I remember us. It was just when it was kind of safe to do so. All of us masked up and vaccinated, um, going to his storage space and finding the map of the run where he would put he put pins in the different locations which you see in the movie, oh. and then also like all these VHS tapes. And we found a VCR, and I would just go through all his tapes and find the news footage. And then as I found the news footage then I would have to find who owned the news footage now. Because as you know, the, the local news stations might have been owned by some conglomerate in 1986, but it's gone through like five hands. And, and a lot oh, of the yeah. footage, you know, obviously I licensed all of the footage, but a lot of it, they didn't have copies of it. So I actually used the digitized copy that Brent had, which they allowed us to do because a lot of some archives had been destroyed by fire. Some of them just weren't digitized at all. So, it was a really um, interesting journey to learn just all about archival licensing, which is a huge part of documentary filmmaking. Oh, man. So <laughs> it's like a project and another project within a project. Yes, yes. You're having to do some kind of archaeological dig to, digs to find a, a VCR practically? Oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, actually our um, – our our DP and our editor uh, Greg Emata had one of those little TV VCR combos. So I went to his apartment and just was sitting there. But I do remember the day so distinctly when I found the footage of his mother, Marion, talking to the crowd, and and she was such an amazing person and so ahead of her time, just in her acceptance mm-hmm. of of people who are gay and just just you know she had this great speech that's in the movie, and she said you know I want to 
talk to the parents of America. You know, if you're feeling judgment towards your child, you know, that's wrong. You just need to love them for who they are. And it was just, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it was the most beautiful moment. I, I think I cried. But just to find her, you know, to hear from Brent, his mom was his best friend. She came on the run as he was running around America. She's in her Buick driving behind him as sort of the case <laughs> car to protect him from the cars. I mean, what a mom. And then at night, she would go with him to all the, the gay clubs and sell T-shirts and buttons to raise money for the local, um, you know, the local community organization. So she was, she was an amazing person and, and a huge part of the story, you know, that I didn't know when I started out, um, what a huge role she played in the run around America. Oh, she was <sighs> – you you just had to fall in love with her, you know. I don't see how yeah. anyone couldn't fall in love with her. And when she's a woman is intelligent, uh, she's savvy, and she's she's lovable. How could anyone not listen to her mm-hmm. and take what she said to heart? You know, she was uh, one of the had to be one of the best parts of the story. I yeah, and you know when when um, Tara who was on the run as well as the road manager part of it, and she would talk about just all of these um, gay and lesbian um, people whose parents had just turned them away and and um, tossed them out, having sort of this maternal figure to turn to, to, mm-hmm. to hug them, to accept them, to shine a light on them. It, it was so beautiful that she could serve in that role um, for, you know, in each community that they would visit. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and... Um... So interesting because I remember in those times too. Yeah, there were some people who, um, it's like you should, you know, their families just disowned them, or just wouldn't have anything to do. And then the other, you know, things could also be worse as far as um, attacks, not only verbally but physically to people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like I said, she was. Uh, and, and, and of course, then at the time too, you talked about when uh, the AIDS crisis began. First, it was kind of mystery. Uh, then people were confused, and then there, were, of course, there's always misinformation. Which mm-hmm. um, I don't know what, how you see it, Kara, but I always think that misinformation always gets around a lot faster than actual true information. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, there was such a stigma. It, it was thought of as just gay men and at the time they were there was you know people were so um prejudicial towards gay men so in a sense it was like why should we care about why should we care about them it was the general sense from a lot of people you know and um it took a long time for it to get any attention or any resources um from you know what it should have been mm-hmm. And I think there like, was... Brent still feels that. He feels those losses, so many losses. Um, you know, one of the things when I set out to make the film is I wanted to figure out why someone who wasn't a runner would choose to run 10,000 miles, a marathon a day, six days a week for 20 months, um, why he would do such an insane thing. And, you know, I mean, the title of the movie sort of says it all, but it was also about his grief and feeling powerless as he was meeting mm-hmm. so many people that he loved and wanting to take action. Like the biggest thing also I learned from Brent was like, you know what, there's, there's going to be situations where you feel like you can't do anything, but you can always 
do something for your mm, community. Yeah. So that, that was really inspiring um, to me and I know to, to really everyone who encountered Brent as we were making the theater show and, and the film. So what um... – we talk about the the runner. Yes, you're right. If you can't do you can't do everything. You can't do some things, but you can do something uh, in the situation. Mm-hmm. And so Brent, not a runner, not somebody who ran track or anything before. Like, oh, I'll, this is my thing. I can do this. It was he brought this on. Uh, tell me about the Canadian runner that inspired yeah. that. So Terry Fox had been diagnosed with cancer and had lost, uh, you know, a lower, one of his lower limbs to cancer. And he decided to run around Canada to raise money and awareness for cancer. And, and in Canada, he's a big um, celebrity, you know, unfortunately he did eventually succumb to the cancer and and didn't get to finish the run, but Brent's family is Canadian. um, So he grew up with real awareness of Terry Fox. And when he when he he tells that he was having a dark night of the soul, you know he had he had been out dancing and and um, Mel Sharon, who was a, a figure in the sort of disco community and owned um, the garage, which was a club, um, said to him, you know, are you, are you enjoying yourself? And I'm paraphrasing, but are you enjoying yourself? He says, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, your community is in trouble, and you can't just take from your community; you have to give something back. And so Brent was really struggling with that. And he says he got a message from his then dead father that said mm-hmm. you need to do for AIDS what Terry Fox did for cancer. And he mm. said it was super clear. He didn't like the message. He didn't like the idea. <laughs> but it came, and he was like, well, I guess I have to do it because it just didn't leave him. And all his friends thought he was insane. Uh, but eventually they all got on board and helped him figure out how to do it. And they, you know, they figured out all the logistics and started raising money and, you know, all of it sprang into action, but it really came from this, just this calling that Brent had about Terry Fox. Now that part of the story, uh, starting from, you know, from his friend talking to him, then, the uh, he's looking inward. He has a message from gets a, a clear, not a I felt like or you know I kind of get the feeling that my dad <laughs> my dad would want me no nothing like that. He said it was a clear message. Mm-hmm. Do what it's Fox clear said. as day. He said it's a message. From, I got a message from my father, and this is what yeah. he said. Yeah, and so uh, you know that's. That's one of those moments where, you, okay, you got to take your hands off and, and let it go. You can't say, well, mm-hmm. what about, or maybe, I don't think this is a good idea. No, that was it. There, there was no turning back then. And that's, uh, I think that's kind of like a little, uh, a miracle in the story in itself. Because that, yeah. that created, I won't say changed the trajectory, it, it created the, the next move. Now, after that, um, I'm sure, you know, when he started to tell his friends about it or talk about it, what kind of, uh, what was everyone's idea? Oh, they all thought he was crazy. You know, his best friend, Anita, <laughs> said, you know, one little problem, you're not a runner. You know, <laughs> how are you going to oh, yeah, do there's that? <laughs> you don't run. Uh, you know, and I think at that point he had maybe done one 5K, um, you know, and, and so we'd had a little bit, a little bit of like of a moment of, Oh, a little endorphins. It made him feel better, but it was just like you know, a little run around Central Park. 
So, so he did start training. You know, he trained, for, I think, for about two, two and a half years before he left for the run. And no one had done that distance that he was going to do. Um, it was the furthest distance. At the time, it was the, first, the furthest distance that anyone had ever attempted to do as sort of a long-distance run. And so, you know, people just thought, well, just start running marathons and just keep running marathons. So for about two years, he just kept running marathons. He trained up to that point, and he would run marathons and marathons and marathons until he was ready to go. I mean, the funniest thing to me was he came back from the run to New York, um, October 31st, 1987. And there's a video of him, you know, in Union Square Park doing a rally. Joe Papp was there. Raquel Welch was there. It was kind of amazing. Wow. And, he, and he said, you know what? I'm going to, tomorrow, I'm going to run the New York City Marathon because, you know, the fight to end AIDS is not over. And so his response after running around America was to then run an extra marathon. How good grief. So. I was just like, I'm not done. We're not done. And, you know, he came back and he never stopped. He's still like, he's, he's had real health challenges. You know, I talked to him a few weeks ago, he'd been in the hospital, but he's still planning his world AIDS day event for December 1st, knowing that he might not be around for it. He just doesn't ever stop. Like he has decided this was his life's purpose and he has been doing it and continues to do it to this day. So, Never having been a runner, deciding to do the run, what about um, getting in shape and training? Yes, he said he went to go to a front runner's meeting, which was sort of an LGBTQ running club. It still exists all over the world. And, you know, they kind of laughed at him. But there was one person there, Dave Weir, who became a good friend, who started helping him. Um, a few people started helping him train and figure out technique and all of that. And at the same time, his other friends, um, Anita and Jackie and Charles, who are in the movie, his best friends, who are all in the theater, you know, were like, well, it's basically a show. Let's, let's put on a show. Let's figure out the logistics. How, where is he going to sleep? What's the route? How are we going to pay for food? All of those things. So they started working on that as Brent was training. And, um, you know, they were just an amazing group of people. And while Brent was away, you know, they never really, they never got a, a significant amount of funding. They never got any grants. They never got any corporate sponsors. You know, they always tell you they never got a shoe sponsor. Um, so they would. Oh, the yeah. Would, yeah, they never got a shoe sponsor. It seems crazy now. But, like, they would, they would table. They would set up tables all over New York City and just sell the American Run for the End of AIDS t-shirts and buttons, and then they would send the money out on the road, and that's how they paid for the run. So, like, nickels and dimes, like, every cent mattered, and, you know, they were on the road eating peanut butter and jelly and, you know, not spending any money, and that was – there was a moment where they almost ran out of money. They just didn't have complete funding. So it was the challenge of the physical challenge, but it was also the, like, can we, can we do this? Can we finish this run? Yeah, there was, uh, and, and the thing is, too, because you have such great, the archival footage to put into this, uh, you see, you know, you see the, the, the rough parts, you see the, uh, the, good, the good things, you know, when they feel mm-hmm. like they've got a, there's something to celebrate or some victory each time, you know. Uh, but you see, too, when they start to run out of money and it's like, okay, what are we going to eat now? Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't, mm-hmm. I'm not quoting the film, but, you know, you can feel that that vibe of okay now now what and yeah 
And the thing is, Brent was so determined to get through this. this, And plus, he has such a great team around him of Mm -hmm. people that were hardworking, but who he could also trust. That were they were cared about him, and they cared about the project and the community. And he had all that going on, but still, um, even when it was hard to get him to rest, didn't he have? um, I remember him talking about he had stress. Fractures? Oh, stress fractures, blisters, so much pain. Um, but, you know, he just thought about what his friends were going through who were sick, and he just put it, he just put it past it. He just kept going, you know. One of the most moving things that Brent told me is, you know, each place they would go, they would go to the hospitals, they would go to hospice, and they would just talk to people who were sick and we're probably going to die and he would tell them I'm out here I'm a voice for you I won't let your life be lost without people knowing about it I I will fight for you Um, and and to me that was so moving that he took that on because so many people were abandoned by their families and just alone Um, so to have someone who could really be a champion for them and for the you know just the fight to get services to get attention, to get the president to say the word, you know, all of these things at that time, um, there was just, there just was not enough support and um, there was just so many lives being lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and it's a shame too, that they couldn't get any, um, like any kind of corporate sponsorship, no shoe company mm-hmm. would, I guess they didn't want to, I guess it's kind of like what Bud Light's going through now. Oh, I mean, we're kind of in a full circle moment, aren't we? Unfortunately, you know, with with recent things. But um, there is always this, um, can a corporation, you know, attach their name to to that? And there's certainly there's wonderful corporations who who support. And um, we had some corporate sponsors for our documentary, the wonderful, but like uh, it it was a different time. And it just, there was not anyone willing to put their business name on the line for this cause. Mm Hmm. Uh, so, Dot, right now I'm going to play a little something um, uh, for somebody that's a sponsor for the show. And then we were going to be back in about one minute with uh, Cara Consilvio. Uh, she is the a director and producer and talking about her film, For the Love of Friends, all about... <laughs> You know, I'm starting to get emotional on this now, but um, it's a story of a man who gave it everything he had for the love of his friends, and uh, Brent Nicholson Earl and his 10,000-mile run around the country in 20 months to bring awareness to the AIDS epidemic. So we'll be back in about one minute with more of Cara Consilvio. Ugh, what a day. I just need some me time for once. Yes, perfect. I got the new bath bombs today. Peach and clove, here we come. Mim and the Anvil makes the best smelling herbal blends of bath bombs. You can order loose or ground herb, added buttermilk, extra large, even ones with hidden gifts inside. There are over 25 essential oil varieties. After today, my body definitely needs some spiritual nourishment and lots of fizz. Her metaphysical blends are soothing in more ways than one. 
Visit MimInTheEnvil.com today. Make time for yourself. There are over 100 herbal blends of bath bombs. Keep a healthy body and mind. Feed your soul. Visit MimInTheEnvil.com today. If you don't make time for yourself, no one else will. Okay, we are back with Karak and Sylvia, who wrote, directed, and produced the film For the Love of Friends uh, through Hup Productions. And you are co-founder of Hup Productions, Kara? Yes. Yes, with my husband, Alex Turner. You know, Hup, we met our first in two dates for flying trapeze classes on the uh, oh. West Side Highway rig in New York City. So when you <laughs> jump off a of flying trapeze, the instructor will go, one, two, three, hop, and you jump into the air swinging on the trapeze. So that, that's the name of our production company. Um, Perfect. <laughs> so you both agreed on that immediately, right? Yeah, you know, it was an easy, it was an easy name, but, you know, it's been a great artistic partner. You know, we've done um, a number of short films and we, we've done a, some now two live shows and uh, theater shows. And um, it's just really fun when you get to create with your best friend and your husband. So, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Oh, yeah. Uh, so right now, this, this might be a good time just to talk a little bit about what you do. We'll get back into the story, of course, of Brent Nicholson Earl. But uh, let's talk about you and, and your production sure. company and uh, what you've done. Because you've got all kind of words like opera, jazz, <laughs> NEA. Yes. You've got all this stuff going yes. on. It's like I, I'm going to have to do a series on you, I think, just to get everything out to share with people. So. <laughs> I mean, it's so, really – yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to tell me your story. You went to New York to be an actor just like – because you and Brent had a lot of par- a lot of things in common, that, so you really clicked um, on several levels and on several yeah. points. Uh, you both moved to New York to act? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, tell and, us you know, it's interesting. Yeah, so, you know, I went to, I went to undergrad at, at UC Berkeley, and I actually started there as a film major – and this was a long time ago. Uh, you know, I was there in 1996 to 2000, and I was so in love with film, and I wanted to be a film director. And I got there. First of all, it's very theoretical. You know, at the time, there was not a lot of, like, there was no um, digital filmmaking. So, you know, it was like one class in your senior year where you got to make something. But honestly, we were studying all men, um, all the filmmakers, mm. all the great artists, and Coppola and Scorsese and at the time, Woody Allen, you know, all of these men. And I just, I kind of just didn't see that I could have a future in the industry. Um, and I loved working, making things. So, you know, it kind of made me go back into theater. I, I you know, I, it was funny. I applied to transfer to UCLA. They had this little, they had this junior level transfer program. I decided at that time, if I get in, and they took about 10 people, if I get in, I'm going to be a film director. If I don't, I'm going to be an actor. So I didn't get into the program. I, I finished my time at Berkeley, and then I moved to New York to be an actor. Spent a number of years there, and I started singing really seriously. Um, I ended up studying with this singer who gave me an opera aria, this Puccini aria, and I was like, what is this? I don't know about opera. But I ended up falling in love with singing opera, 
and I went back to school from 2007, 2010. I left the city to uh, get a second undergrad degree in vocal performance and opera. So that's how I got into opera. Um, and I ended up, you know, I, I eventually discovered like, oh my God, being an opera singer is insane. It's like being an Olympic athlete. I love singing, <laughs> but as a career, it is so hard. It's like being, it's just insane. Um, so, you know, I ended up in the opera field. I ended up working for an, a nonprofit called Opera America for a few years back in New York as I was going back into, you know, still performing. But eventually I, I started directing again. I actually started directing again when I was, I'd always directed. I directed in elementary school. I would put on shows at recess. Like it's a thing I've always done. I've been obsessed right. with directing, um, you know, it, but I'd never really gotten to make film. And eventually the opera and the film world collided in 2009 where my best friend, uh, Greg, who works on For the Love of Friends as the DP and the editor, you know, he was looking for someone to work on this project to make these tribute videos for the NEA Opera Honors where we would travel around. So he needed someone who knew about opera and who knew about film. And, you know, that ended up, we, I think we made almost 40 tribute videos over three years. We did them for opera. We did them for jazz masters. So we get to interview, like, you know, the entire Marsalis family and Tony oh, Bennett and Harry Connick Jr. And we would just travel around. And, and so we, we did these, you know, short, about seven or eight minute tribute videos. And then, you know, then I started doing behind the scene videos and making of videos. And so it, it actually opera returned me to filmmaking. And then Greg and I started working on things. So we've, you know, he's done a, a feature comedy horror that I also was a producer on and co-story writer. We've done a bunch of shorts. Both of us have worked on each other's shorts. So it was actually opera that kind of brought me back into film. And then I, at the same time, um, for the last nine years, I've been a freelance opera director working all over the U.S. at, at all these companies. Um, so it's been all at the same time, making films, you know, I, I've done uh, two shorts and as well that I, you know, raised all the money for and made and, and then this is my first feature. So it's been, it's been a long journey, but um, really exciting. Like for me, I love working in all the different mediums. I think each medium has something so unique about it and, and how you can maximize the potential for storytelling. And I love, um, you know, working in different ways. Wow. Okay. See, I, I think this is fantastic, but I and I love this. And of course, as a woman, I really love this because you, you're going one way, and you see they're concentrating on men. You're trying to find what works for you. You go where went to New York. All of a sudden, when you start singing, and well, no, it's not all of a sudden, but you start singing, <laughs> taking singing seriously, and then all of a sudden, opera, and then you get a degree. You take a degree in that. I know it's crazy. It was that. It was the that's the best kind of crazy to like uh, film. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing. I if it was a movie, and it'd go, oh no. <laughs> well, you know, I look back at my time when I was, you know, studying film in college, and the whole "if you can see it, you can be it" thing is so true. Because later, you know, I started, I think around 2010, 2011, I went to Sundance just for fun and um, saw Lynn Shelton's film and heard her speak and then Ava DuVernay and starting to see and Patty Jenkins getting Wonder Woman. So once I started seeing that there were women who could like do it, I was like, I can do this. I just have to like, you know, have to just work really hard and believe that it can happen so it's just been a really full circle mo moment to have like a film on PBS. You know, the day that it came out, you know, it's on the PBS um, dot org. It's on PBS app on your TVs. It's, it's kind of everywhere. 
it was like one of those, I took a little Instagram reel of me pointing to it because you just couldn't believe it that it had been this dream since I had, since I was like 14 years old to have a movie, a feature that I directed. And so, um, you know, I, I'm just grateful that I found my way back because it, it's just such a joyful, I love film. I love the process. I love the creation of it. I love the collaboration. And I'm so glad that like for my younger self that was kind of wounded and lost and gave up on a dream that I could find my way back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I just laughing with joy here because I I, I love story. Um, I love your story. Uh, I don't know who's going to make your documentary <laughs> one day, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's I think that's just brilliant because when you talk about it, I listen to it what you're saying, and I can imagine all the work and all the sweat and all the probably days and nights of very little sleep and just running on, on, running on fumes, running out of gas or running on fumes yourself uh, to get this done until you, you make it, you make it happen. You know, you make it all happen. And I'm thinking the more you talk about it, I can just feel the energy and the joy. Yeah. It, it, it was so joyful to make this film, um, like because I got to make a, direct a film and write and produce it, but also because of, of Brent and getting to meet him and get to know him and get to call him now my very close friend um, who I care about so deeply. Um, it's just really special when, you know, when someone trusts you with their life story, uh, it's mm-hmm. a very special and unique kind of a bond. Um, oh, definitely. I, there's nothing like it, you know. <laughs> well, and, he had turned down other filmmakers, hadn't he, that, that, that yeah. offered or wanted to tell his story? Yeah. He had. And then, and then you know, but that was a while ago. And then it, it was getting to the point where it was like, is this even going to happen? You know, is mm-hmm. this? And, and I just, I, I'm so grateful to, to my in-laws, Barbara Martinez and David Charner, because they had a vision for this. And they felt it was important, and you know they committed and, and said, you know, we're gonna we can do this, and you know we all started it together as a family, and you know, I I, I started researching everything, you know, the research and figuring out and how can we do it and all of the steps to to do a feature documentary and what is involved in it, and then of course it's learning how do you get distribution. <laughs> Uh, you know, we you know, oh, get the yeah. film festivals, which I'd done the film festival thing before with shorts, but trying to get, you know, you don't really get distribution for a short. It's about you go to the festivals and then it's great. You made a thing. But when you have a feature, <laughs> you know, for us, it was always the goal of we want as many people as possible to hear Brent's story. That was always the goal. So for us, we were so grateful um, to partner with American Public Television because they really got it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, we, it's crazy now, like a, Alex is doing all the social media, and of course, anyone can watch it streaming at any time in the U.S. and Canada. But also, he'll post, you know, broadcast at Topeka in Topeka, Kansas today at 2 p.m. You know, every day he's putting on these <laughs> where it is, and it's just kind of amazing to see that someone could be flipping through their channels and just stumble upon Brent's story. It's like kind of an amazing thing. Like I never imagined that it would be on broadcast television. Like it's it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's one. And I, I'm also glad that you mentioned uh, too. And I'm going to say your name again as well, Barbara Martinez. You know, your mother-in-law, mm-hmm. who is an AIDS activist herself, and was a friend yep. of Earl. Um, so that she met you, she introduced you, and then of course, um, 
Alex Charmer, you know, your husband, mm-hmm. and oh, just what a beautiful family to be in. Oh, yeah, they're, they're the best, and they're amazing, and, you know, they just, they care, and they're so generous with their time and energy and, you know, resources. You know, they they, they gave the, the money to start this film. You know, we ended up getting some corporate sponsorships and, and donors to come on, but without their investment and deciding, you know what, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. This is what we want to invest in. Um, we believe in it and let's make it happen. You know, it really was their vision and they are, they are the executive producers of the film. Um, and it's such a unique um, way to, it, you know, sort of it, documentaries never make any money. So it, it's just a charitable <laughs> donation really when you set forth on a documentary, but to make that, they just cared so much about Brent and about his story and also um, it was an honor of, of Barbara's brother, Raul, like that, it's, it's just all about love and um, it's really been wonderful. Yeah, it is all about love and the story in so many different ways. It's about a, a crisis in many ways, a health crisis, a crisis of a generation, of a country and beyond, uh, but also about a lot of love, a lot of love for people supporting each other. Are there any other people, because I know there's so many people that mentioned here that uh, – Big parts of this, uh, the composer of the uh, mm-hmm. film and different folks. Um, I'd like to have just a few minutes here where if you want to give shout out and, uh, to any anyone who's worked on this with you that you just want to. Oh my goodness, there's so many people. Now I'm going to, what's going to happen <laughs> is I'm going to forget like 10 oh. people, but, but I can say, you know, we, um, uh, Greg Amata is my best friend and also the editor and director of production and has just been, you know, with this movie every step of the way. When 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 it was decided we were going to have it broadcast on PBS, we had to unlock the film and take nine minutes off. So you can imagine. Um, and uh, our, our composer, Solomon Lerner, is just incredible, um, incredible composer and also um, producing the recording of the of the soundtrack, which was the 29th piece orchestra. It was actually recorded mm. in Venezuela, you know, during the pandemic. It was a really wonderful opportunity to give those musicians some work. Um, really exciting. Um, uh, Doug Johnson is our amazing sound mixer, um, sound designer, amazing. Um, and, of course, Alex Turner as producer, co-producer with me and, also, the king of scanning all of the archival photos, all of the graphic <laughs> designs, uh, you know, creating the, the sponsor video for our PBS broadcast, um, so many things. You know, with a movie like this, everyone is doing 10 jobs. Um, so I just had an amazing team uh, to work with. Um, and, of course, Barbara and David as the executive producers. Oh, yeah. and, and everyone in the movie, all of the interviewees, you know, one of the – one of the things that is very sad is two of the interviewees of Brent's friends has passed away since we filmed with them. Anita, his best mm-hmm. friend, died, and also um, Tony. And so, you know, Brent said at first when he would watch the movie again, it was sad, but now he gets to visit with his friends um, when he mm-hmm. watches the movie. So, you know, all of the interviewees and everyone in the theater show who was also in the movie, uh, just amazing people. Wow. That's uh that's amazing. I certainly hope that you and Alex, Barbara, and Brent, and everyone is just so – gives yourself a chance just to be so proud of yourselves. 
Well, thank you so much, and thank you for watching and for having me on, and I hope everyone watches it. It's, you know, sometimes when you tell people what the subject's about, there's like a, oh, but it's really <laughs> inspirational and funny, and it might make you cry, but in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sort of, uh, yeah. It's sort of like me where I used to try to tell people about Eddie Izzard. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess you've seen him at stage shows or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, and I was, well, what's he like? I go, well, he has these funny stories about the Bible and this, you know, or whatever, or history. or those, And they look at me kind of like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, oh, I'll be sure and try to find him. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and they can't get away fast. And it's hard to say, but, you know, it's Eddie. He does it his way. Okay, there's the Death Star Canteen bit, whatever. Like, uh-huh, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he's funny <laughs> to you. But, um, but yes. Yeah, People, yeah, it's not the kind of thing people go, oh, yeah, I was looking for a good AIDS documentary. Um, exactly. Oh, God, glad you came along. So. <laughs> it's about humanity, and it's about the human spirit. And, you know, I, I, David had this amazing thing he would say to us when we were working on the film is, how do you make it not boring? How does something that's so specific become universal? And that was really um, one of the things I challenged myself with is, is to make this story for everyone, um, and and I, I, I mean, people seem to like it, so I, I hope everyone who's listening will watch. Yes, well, David Charner, it happened, it happened, <laughs> and this one's about the way it was laid. You know, as you and see now, you're telling me two other people I've been watching have passed, and it's like you start, you want to be friends with everybody. On yeah, when you start seeing everybody, go, I like these people. You know, I would hang out with them. Um, if they let me, they're just, it's just a warm, intelligent and care, caring bunch. So uh, thank you. Uh, I do have one more thing to ask you, Cara Consilvio. Sure. Writer, director, producer, opera singer. Yes. You have so many things that I want to talk to you about. Um, I, would, I would be delighted if you would come back sometime and talk about some of your other work. Uh, I would love that. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Yay! All right. Well, thank you so very much. And uh, I guess a shout out to everybody. Um, I will have on all of my social media, not just Madam Perry Salon, but also on my personal social media, I will be sharing uh, information and links so that you can learn more about For the Love of Friends documentary, Brent Nicholson Earl. Uh, and nobody will have to miss it because a lot of people tell me to listen when they're when they're driving or when they're jogging yeah. or something and they can't write it down. So I always say, don't worry, I'll have the links everywhere. All right. Um, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. It's been an absolute delight. So thanks to you, Cara Casilvio. Much continued success to you. Uh, Barbara, David, Alex, and the whole crew, the whole gang, uh, and Brent. And uh, as I always tell the audience, it includes you, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and uh, I'll see you next week. And, of course, I always close out with my own personal motto, everybody's got to swing. I love everybody. I think you're all wonderful, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.